on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you're a first-time listener and new to this ministry. For the next hour, we'll be taking questions as it relates to God's Word. Maybe you're studying a passage, you have some doctrinal questions or interpretational issues, or maybe there's a personal issue in your life or ministry or church that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP-980. We live stream through the internet at wagp.net around the world, 24 hours a day, every day of the year, as this station broadcasts 24-7. If you would like to email us the question, we get a lot of email questions every week, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. And when you call, uh, you can go on the air, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. I think someone's already called in and has dictated a question, so let's start with theirs. They did, sir, and it was a very critical question. They have a friend and a loved one, I believe, and they ask uh, how you would share the gospel with an unsaved family member. Which verses of Scripture would you patiently share? And also, please elaborate on the meaning of being born again. Well, that's a great question. Um, for years and years, I used a little track called uh, the Four Spiritual Laws. In fact, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I was responsible for training all the campus staff uh, with how to use that booklet. And they had to watch a, a video on how to make the issue clear. And what I found myself doing was supplementing uh, the booklet with uh, information, illustrations, additional scripture, and so forth. And one of the reasons is because um, certainly someone can just pick up the Bible and read it and become a Christian, but that is not typically what happens. It's much like with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He says, look, water, you know, what prevents me from being baptized? Remember that occasion? Well, right prior to that, when he's reading the prophet uh, Isaiah, he's reading Isaiah 53, which is a prophetic passage describing the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, and yet it's still 700 plus years away. Um, he says, uh, Philip comes up in the providence of God through a number of circumstances that got him to the chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, really, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so certainly someone could pick up a Gideon's Bible and read it or um, some verses that are listed and become Christians. But typically the Spirit of God uses a human agent who comes alongside and who explains the Scripture so that a person can understand. And so what I have found myself having to do in more recent years is, 
you know, you could take a booklet like the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John ten ten, John three sixteen on the opening pages. And the problem is there's no context anymore for those things. Uh, 93% of Americans under the age of 35 can't name more than three of the Ten Commandments. We're in a totally biblically illiterate society. I'm meeting people in their 20s when I ask them about Adam and Eve and whether they ate the fruit or not. And they say, well, I'm, I'm not really sure who Adam and Eve are. You know, it's it's remarkable to me that some people are that illiterate. But that's what's happening. When I was um, in Rome uh, a few years back and I was uh, asking uh, a maitre d', uh, really the concierge at a hotel about a particular site uh, concerning the Apostle Paul, they said, well, tell me now, who is this Apostle Paul? I had no idea. And of course, uh, Europe has become a very destitute place in terms of Christianity. Once the center of Christianity for over a thousand years now, approximately 5% of the people in Europe even attend church. Only 5% even go to church. Some places it's lower, like Italy, the Roman Catholic capital of the world, only about 3% attend uh, in the United Kingdom, it's a little bit higher, 10%. But in many of those churches, the Bible's not even open. So people are in a vacuum. And really, the, the stage is being set for the great apostasy, people who are Christianized without being true Christians. So over the years, I realized there was a need to give kind of a broader, big-picture approach. So I start with the creation of Adam and Eve and how God made them and created them and uh, how he made them with a free will, how they chose to sin, the consequences that sin brought, uh, namely death, and that how God becomes a man and pays the penalty that he set in a substitute, a sinless substitute who could die in our place, demonstrated that ability to serve as a substitute when he was raised from the dead. And all that is left for us to do is to admit our bankruptcy and call upon Christ in faith. And I've written a little booklet entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? Because the Bible describes us prior to conversion as God's enemies, but it also describes us as being made his friends through faith in Christ. And the Bible defines eternal life as knowing the Lord. All people know about God. Not everyone knows the Lord personally. A lot of people know God the way I know our president. I know a lot of facts about him. I've read information about him. I've seen him a lot in the years he's served as our president, but I don't know him personally. Well, a lot of people know God in that way. And so I've written a track that uh, really has a lot of the commentary in it that explains the meaning of the verses, and it's entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? It is in Russian, it's in Ukrainian, it is in Spanish, it is the Hindi uh, edition has just been completed, and of course it's in English, and we're looking in 2014 possibly to also put it in Japanese. Uh, it's a great little booklet. Uh, It's very user-friendly, and really, if you just read it to a person, and again, it's designed not just to hand to a person, though there is a lot of commentary in there, but to sit down and answer their questions, that would be a great tool. You can go to searchthescriptures.org and get information and request uh, 
Uh, we'll send you a free copy, but if you want to buy them, uh, just call the toll-free line of Search the Scriptures. It's 877-STS for Search the Scriptures. The 877 number is STS-7478. All right, great question. Uh, let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Oh, and by the way, that booklet also uh, indicates specifically what it means to be born again. Yes, right? it, thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, hello, Pastor Brogy. Um, I was just trying to ask you, how can God be the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time? Well, that that's a great, great thought. And, um, you know, when we speak to the doctrine of the Trinity, it's a very, very important doctrine. How old are you, my friend? <laughs> what did you say? I say, how old are you? I'm 11. 11. Well, these are good questions for an 11-year-old to be asking. Um You know, someone once said, a famous theologian, he said, if you try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, that's what we're talking about, Trinity meaning three in one. Uh, If you try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, he said, you'll lose your mind, but if you deny it, you'll lose your soul. So the concept that God is one God who exists in three co-equal persons who have existed for all of eternity, co-equal co-eternal is something that's revealed in the Bible. Uh, Jesus is no less God than the Father, and the Father is no more God than the Son. Uh, The Spirit is no less God than either the Father or the Son, and no more God than the Father or the Son. So how does God exist in three persons in one? Well, again, the Bible affirms, first of all, hero Israel in Deuteronomy 6, a very famous passage of Scripture that every single Sabbath, Saturday, in Jewish synagogues around the world, it is read, and it has been read for centuries. And it's an important verse. Jesus highlighted its importance in that he said the most significant commandment when asked, what's the greatest of all the commandments? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. So God is one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. There's many illustrations I could give you maybe to help you to grasp the concept of the Trinity. Sometimes people use the illustration of H2O. It can be water, it can be steam, or it can be ice three different forms. Not the best illustration because it can't be all three at once. Uh, And yet God is Father, Son, and Spirit at once. Now I'm a husband and that I'm married to my wife, Audrey. I'm a father and that I have, you know, five of my own children. And I'm a son and that I was born of earthly parents. I'm father, son, and uh, all all at once, Um, all at once. So um, it's an interesting concept. Maybe a better illustration would be to think of measurements, spatial relationships. Every object that you have in front of you has what's called height, depth, and width. Uh, The pencil you may be holding has height, it has depth, it has width, the chair you're sitting on. Um, And so if you take height, depth, and width and just think about it for a moment, they are one and yet they are inseparable. If I were to take my pen and just make a dot on a piece of paper, even that tiny little dot of ink has height, depth, and width to it. And you cannot have one without the other. And yet they're distinguishable. They're not the same. In other words, the height is not the depth. The depth is not the width. The width is not the height. 
They're all different, and yet you cannot have one without the other. They coexist as one. Um, Think about uh, time relationships. There's past time, there's present time, and there's future time. Now, the past is not the present. The present is not the future. The future is not the past. They are distinctly different, and yet they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. And so the word Trinity is not a word you will find in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is plainly taught. In uh, heresy, heresy is a word that summarizes someone who denies something that the Bible clearly affirms. Heresy is when someone denies what God clearly teaches. And there have been heretics. Those are the people who believe in heresy, false doctrine. Heretics um, throughout the centuries have denied what God has clearly revealed, that he is one God and he exists in three persons. Even in the Old Testament, where sometimes God puts in very small form what he's going to later reveal, um, you find the doctrine of the Trinity. In the creation account, God doesn't say, let me make man in my image, but he uses a plural pronoun. Uh, You've probably had pronouns by now in English. Let us make man in our image. Uh, And so you have really there an expression of God's plurality. Even in the opening verse in the Bible, uh, you have an expression of God's plurality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, and the word for God is not Elohim, but Elohims. It's a plural word. And yet the word, and it's, and then let me just say this without getting too complicated, but I think you can follow this. If you remember in English, they have what we call singular and plural. Singular refers to one plural, two or more. Um, and so the word car would be singular. The word cars would be plural. Well, in Hebrew, it's even a little bit more refined than that. They have singular, they have a dual, which means two, and then they have a third form of a Hebrew noun, which means three or more. Um, and so in the beginning, God, plural, and it's not a dual, it refers to at least three, and there are three persons within the Godhead, created. Now, in English, if you have a plural noun, you have to have a plural verb. I don't say uh, the car are beautiful. I say the car is beautiful. I don't say the cars is fast. I say the cars are fast. The, the verb has to match the, uh, the noun's plurality. And that's true in Greek, and that's true in Hebrew. And so if there's an exception to the rule, it's not because someone is using poor grammar. It's because God's trying to get our attention. And so even in the opening verse in the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God, and it uses uh, a, a noun that refers to at least three, created, and he uses a singular verb because there is one God who exists in three persons. And then the heavens, which is kind of interesting, that's a dual, because at the time of the creation, there were only two heavens. But later, God created a third heaven, which is a whole other subject. So God is one, but he exists in three persons. 
do I fully understand it? I don't think anyone does, but the Bible reveals it. And so knowing the Bible is a trustworthy book, I, in faith, uh, receive it as true. Anyway, that's a great question. Does that help a little bit? Yes, sir. All right, good. Keep asking questions. That's how you learn, and don't ever be afraid to ask. There are no dumb questions. Every question is important, especially as it relates to God and the Bible. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. A caller says that she's heard you criticize some other pastors, for example, Joel Osteen. She'd like to know if you think this is the Christian thing to do. <laughs> it's a good question, I, and it's a fair question. Um, I don't typically criticize a brother in Christ unless I feel like he is really going against, you know, the Scripture plainly. Um, and then we have a responsibility to do that. But God does tell us that we are to protect the sheep. And if there's a false prophet, then we are to protect the sheep from a false prophet so they do not get sucked in. Now, you can have a true prophet, a true pastor, a true preacher of God who maybe embraces error. And there's a difference between that, someone who embraces error of some kind versus a false prophet. Now, you have people like John MacArthur and John Piper, who are certainly respected pastors. And if you just type in Joel Olstein slash John MacArthur or Joel Olstein slash John Piper, all kinds of YouTube videos will come up and they will say that uh, Joel Olstein is a false prophet. Are they wrong? I don't think so. Um, I came to that conclusion independently of those men when Joel Olstein sent me a book uh, about, it was actually in 1996, because I remember we had just moved into our new first building that we had ever had uh, as a church family. And I think he sent it to me because we, I pastored a non-denominational church. And a high percentage of non-denominational churches in the United States are what we would call prosperity theology, where they uh, underscore that God's plan and purpose is that we might be, you know, rich and free from all sickness and uh, so on and so forth. Um, And that in itself is a different gospel. And most of these prosperity theologians are scam artists, and they're in the ministry for all the wrong reasons. Now, at the heart of Joel Osteen's Uh, theology is prosperity theology, which is wrong to begin with. But lay that aside, there are some prosperity theologians who have the plan of salvation. Uh, But when Joel Olstein, for instance, says in his book that I read years ago, and he's said it many times and in many different ways, I've heard him even being publicly interviewed on Fox News about a year ago, and he reaffirmed the same thing, that he didn't believe that when people come to church on Sunday that as a pastor he should talk about sin because they hear so many bad things during the week. And he has this in writing in one of the first books that he ever uh, put out. And so you can read it for yourself. I'm not putting words into his mouth. You can read on printed page what he has said. And if you go on the Internet, you'll see many of his books quoted in where the error is. But listen— A pastor is to preach the whole counsel of Scripture and to say that you shouldn't talk about sin because it makes people feel bad. You can't preach the gospel without preaching about sin. Uh, Some old guy said, oh, you're just jealous of Joel. I'm not jealous of him. 
Uh, I don't have any axe to grind. I I have a sense of completeness in the Lord. I'm satisfied with who God has made me to be, what he has called me to do. Uh, I don't get any pleasure. But as a pastor, I am called to protect my sheep from error and from false teachers. And so if there's someone out there who's teaching something that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God, I may speak about it. Uh, Someone just emailed me this week and wanted to know what I thought about Andy Stanley's latest statement uh, concerning uh, um, uh, Christians dealing with uh, uh, interfacing with homosexuals in business. As you know, the governor of Arizona this week, and I was praying for her yesterday that God would help her to do the right thing. In that state legislature, they put forth a bill which passed that is coming to her desk this week. I think she has to sign it before Friday. That is a religious freedom protection bill that says that if a person in their heart and mind is opposed to catering to a homosexual, that they should indeed refrain from it. And so there's been a couple of big cases recently, one up in Washington State where you had a photographer who refused to go and uh, serve a homosexual wedding, a couple of men who wanted to get married. He said, no, I don't do that. that. That's against God's design. And of course, they've sued him. And then more recently in Arizona, Uh, You have a second case where um, a Christian, a born-again Christian, refused to make a wedding cake for two lesbians who wanted to get married. He said, no, I don't do that. What you're doing is against God's design. And so uh, that in that state, they have sought to pass a bill. Now, what's really been kind of sad is both Republicans and Democrats, some who voted in favor of this religious freedom bill, has now have now acquiesced and said, we were wrong, we shouldn't have voted for it. Why? Because they put their finger to the wind, and they are spineless people, and they have uh, yielded to the pressure of the media and to homosexual groups that are telling them that uh, you're doing something that's wrong, that this is a discriminating kind of policy. Listen, we discriminate people across this nation every day uh, in moral issues. Uh, There are people who think they are called to have intimate relationships with little children. It's called pedophilia. I know a lot of children listen, so I try to couch my words here very carefully. That's an evil. Um, We said the same thing about homosexuality. It was against the law in all 50 states for hundreds of years in this country, and in some states it's still on the books, and they haven't erased it yet. Uh, That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually a good thing, because it is a wicked behavior, and man's law ideally should reflect the law of God. In fact, Paul makes that very statement. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law— Now referring to man's law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
Paul says man's law should reflect God's law. And just as murder is a moral issue and kidnapping is a moral issue and perjury is a moral issue and murder is a moral issue and those who want to kill their parents is a moral issue, God says so is homosexuality. And so we need to speak with a clear voice and we cannot back down. And so Andy Stanley, when he was interviewed last week, and you can Google it and you can read all his words, and it hit the internet, you know, and all the Christian websites, what he thought about this couple, you know, refusing to make a wedding cake for a homosexual couple, he he said, well, you know, and claiming because of their relationship with Jesus, he said, they should leave Jesus out of this. No, they shouldn't. The Lord Jesus would not have made a wedding cake for that. He would have said, what you're doing is evil. It's a perversion. I've got something better for you. But the thief has come only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he's destroying your personhood and the way God has made you. And you're listening to him and you're yielding to him when you need to be yielding to me. But he's got no backbone. And that's unfortunate. Now, again, I have no reason to believe that Andy Stanley is not a Christian. But if he's going to speak on an issue like that and someone's going to ask me, I'm going to tell you what I think. That's a public issue. And I'm going to tell you that he's wrong for doing that. And the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to tell me that I'm wrong for speaking the way I'm speaking today. How far away do you think we are from Christian radio stations in America being able to say what we're saying today? You know what they want to do? The current administration says we believe in religious freedom. What they mean by that, let me define that for you. What the current administration means by that is not what other presidential executive branches have in past centuries meant by that. What they mean by that is you can do whatever you want in the confines of your little church, but don't bring it out into the center arena. Listen, we are not far away before the FCC will say to Christian radio stations, you want to talk against the sin of homosexuality? Fine, talk about all you want, but you won't have a license. And if people like Andy Stanley don't stand up for what is right, for true religious freedom, then the freedoms that we are enjoying are going to be taken away. And you ought to pray for the governor of Arizona that she would do the right thing this week, that she would have some backbone and not yield to the pressure now of Republicans and others who are now acquiescing. John McCain, who says, oh, you know, he's, of course, not in the state Senate there, but in the U.S. Senate. uh, That's a bad law. No, it's not. It's a good law. Listen, if you run a Christian business and you don't want to uh, make a cake for two homosexuals who want to get married because it's against your conscience, then you ought to be able to do that. But here's the number one issue. Is it a genetic issue or is it a moral issue? If it is a genetic issue, this is the way God created me, then yes, it would be an evil for two Christians not to make that cake. That would be like a form of racism. But this is not a genetic issue. The Bible is crystal clear. This is a moral issue. And if we back down on this, we have made a huge, huge mistake. And more and more, this is what's happening. People are backing down. So I I spoke to a visitor. I call all the visitors. If you visit Community Bible Church, I'll try to call you. I get a lot of answering machines these days and voicemails because people don't like to answer their phone direct. But I spoke to someone recently, and she had a problem 
the fact that I said that homosexuality was a sin. And she said the large mega church that she went to, they never spoke about it in a negative way. Listen, I don't think we should do what they've done in Uganda, where the people are marching around in with hate terms towards homosexuals. But the fact that they've written a law saying that homosexuality is a sinful, deplorable lifestyle, there's nothing wrong with that. And if we say it's wrong, then we have to say what Americans did for 200 years in this nation was wrong and evil because it was against the law in all 50 states. And Paul says laws should be written against this behavior, but now we're writing laws in favor of this behavior. I believe we should love gay people, and I want gay people to come to my church so I can share Christ with them. And I want to free them from their lifestyle of evil, uh, just like I want to free the adulterer, the fornicator, and the drunkard. Um, God wants to set us free, and the truth will set us free. But we can't rewrite what is true. And that's what's happening in our day. And that's what Joel Osteen is doing. He's rewriting what the Bible plainly says. And so, yeah, no, I, I have to speak against that. And if it bothers people, well, it bothers people. I may not be the most popular guy, but I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ someday and give an account for the positions I've taken and for the things I've said. Anyway, I appreciate the question. I'm glad you asked me. Let's go to the next one. All right, Sherry from Springfield, Illinois writes, a friend said you have an article that lists the differences between the, oh, we've got a live caller. We always go to live callers first. So thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. How are you? Uh, Doing fine. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Um, I mentioned this in in Rick's ABF on Sunday. I was listening to Mike Huckabee, and he was discussing how in this country we have over 80 million evangelical Christians, and of that, um, only 50% are registered voters, and in the last election, only 50% of them actually voted. And I'm just, I was just curious. I was thinking about this quite a bit over the, over the past few days, and I'm just wondering if, if we're just apathetic or if all of this is taking place to, to fulfill prophecy, to facilitate the end times. And I just wonder what your thoughts were, Pastor Brogy. Well, um, certainly there are a lot of apathetic evangelicals. I I, I seriously question uh, that there are 80 million evangelicals in the United States today. I I don't think there's 80 million evangelicals. If there was 80 million out of the 310 million Americans who are evangelicals, America wouldn't be the way it is today. Uh, I just don't believe that. And there are several reasons I don't believe that. For instance, the Pew Research, uh, who did one of the most extensive surveys ever done uh, on religion, uh, the Pew Council said that 33% of evangelicals, people who call themselves evangelicals, believe that Jesus sinned. Uh, 28% said they didn't believe the uh, virgin birth was necessarily true. So we have people today who say through the surveys that I am an evangelical, but um, they do not really truly believe in life-changing doctrine. Add to that, certainly there are a lot of God's people who have been born again in our day who are passionate about nothing, uh, because even though they may have had a second birth, they've remained baby Christians. And a lot of that is due to the uh, church paradigm that we've adopted across our nation uh, in terms of teaching the Bible. 
we have abandoned what God plainly says should happen on the Lord's day, and we've created worship services to cater to the unbeliever, all in the name of winning people to Christ. Listen, if people know me, they know I'm passionate about winning people to Christ. It's very, very important to me, but the means, uh, the, the means that we use never justifies the end. And so we don't abandon what God says should happen in the pastoral epistles and as modeled in the Acts of the Apostles, what should happen on Sunday morning. We don't abandon the model that God created and gave us for perpetuity, you know, to, to um, uh, now create a new paradigm to win people to the Lord. When you do that, you weaken the church. And it opens the church up to all kinds of error. And so you have Christians today who don't know what the Bible even says about homosexuality. And so um, we need to teach the word. And so there's a lot of apathy in our day, even amongst evangelicals, true evangelicals. Uh, and so, you know, to me, it's, it's a sin for a Christian not to vote. And we have a responsibility as members of the republic that we live in to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. And part of that is to participate in this republic and to hear our voice. It's, a, it's an obedience, really, to the Lord to be salt and light. And God has given us a very clear way in which to do that. And so we should have our voice heard and do all that we can to uh, elect candidates that represent God's point of view. And so this is very, very important in the day we, we live in. And I love Mike Huckabee, and I love him to death, and he's uh, preached in my pulpit. And for a man to do that, you know, I, uh, I see eye to eye with him. But I think his point is a valid point, that millions of evangelicals who are registered, and God only knows the real number of true evangelicals, true born-again Christians, don't vote. And we need to get out and vote, and we need to make a difference. Uh, when I came to Community Bible Church, I met leaders in the church who weren't even registered to vote. And that really bothered me. And I said, listen, guys, this is, this is an obedience issue of being salt and light in the culture that we live in. Um, and so you can complain and rag about what you don't like about America, but God has given us a vehicle uh, to express the light of the world and to express the salt of righteousness, and we need to do that. Anyway, it's a good question. So by application, if you're listening to me and you're not registered to vote, you ought to be. And it doesn't take that long. Uh, The process is really simple. You know, I've had some people say, well, I don't want to register to vote because if I register to vote, then they could call me for for jury duty. Well, they used to do it that way, but now they do it through your driver's license uh, if you have a driver's license. But look, even, even if you're called for jury duty, that's an American thing to do. Uh, again, we, we need people. Our jury system doesn't even function unless there are people of high moral values. So the last time I served in a jury about four years ago, I, they ended up for whatever reason selecting me as the chairman. And the case was so crystal clear. You had people in that room arguing why we should let this criminal get off. And by God's grace, I was able to reason with them and convince them that this guy should not get off, that he was guilty. And if we let him off, we're making a huge mistake. Well, again, we didn't have prior knowledge in that case. Um, and we found him guilty. And there was one holdout, but by God's grace, you know, she finally said, okay. 
And then the judge said, well, we appreciate what you did today, and we need you to know that this guy also has five other crimes pending against him, and this is going to help us to really mediate the process that much further and allow more cases to be tried. Anyway, so all it takes, as Edmund Burke once said, well, he's credited with saying it, and I guess Reagan made it famous because he quoted it in one of his speeches in the 80s, but you can't document it, but we'll still give him credit for it, that all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. And that's a biblical principle. Let's go to the next question or call. All right, back to Sherry from Springfield. A friend said you have an article that lists the differences between the King James Version and the NIV. Where can she find this? Well, um, I did a course uh, on Wednesday nights a couple of years ago called Bibliology. There are seven sections to it, and I go through things like how do we know the Bible is true? We deal with um, the infallibility of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, two closely related uh, issues. Uh, in one of the sections, in section six, I do something where I evaluate um, the English Bibles that we have today, and I go through a number of different translations, the Net Bible, uh, the NIV, the ESV, the King James, the New King James, the RSV, the New RSV, the New American Standard, uh, the HCSB, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, Southern Baptist just put out. So I go through all the major translations and do some evaluation and deal with the King James issue folks and uh, so that's in the course on Bibliology, and if you call Search the Scriptures, the toll-free number again for them is 877-STS-7478, and tell them that you would like to uh, order the uh, Section 6. You can also order the, the the messages that go with it. I think the messages actually may be online where you can download those. So you don't even have to buy them unless you just want a hard copy, but you would need to just purchase the handout and pay for the shipping and um, get it through them. Anyway, good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to our next caller who's waiting. All right. Uh, Someone on line one yes, right very now. good. All right, terrific. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Hey, thank you for calling. We have uh, coming up a number of movies about the Bible, about, you know, Noah, uh, about Moses. Uh, this weekend we got the Son of God. Right. Uh, I know that Hollywood is trying to cash in on the success of the Bible on the History Channel, which I was not a fan of. Uh, and, and the same thing with this movie, Son of God. I'm not trying to poo-poo it, because I, I pray that, like Apostle Paul said in Philippians, as long as the gospel is being preached and if people seeds will be planted, I'm all for it. But I'm wondering, uh, where do you come down on whether it's now or in the past, movies about the Bible or about Jesus, and uh, is it a legitimate tool to share the gospel, or should we more, more focus on actually uh, getting people into churches or sharing the gospel with them in person? Well, you know, I think there are times when uh, the Hollywood group makes movies, some of them that have been, you know, really well done, Cecil Cecil C. DeMille did a a movie, you know, 50 years ago on the Ten Commandments. He did one, I think, Ben-Hur, and uh, they were really opportunities to talk to people about the Lord. And as far as I know, he was not a professing born-again Christian. I hope he found Christ. 
but nonetheless, he, he produced a movie that for the most part was, you know, fairly accurate. Uh, the last movie I went to was called The Passion of Christ, and it's been some years now. Um, and it was an opportunity to discuss, you know, the Bible in God's Word. Now, there were some issues in the movie that were just grossly inaccurate. And through my eyes, as I watched it, I thought, well, that is not what the Scripture says, or that's a misrepresentation. And then there were some inferences, some that were kind of interesting in terms of issues the Bible did not specifically say, but, um, you know, they interpreted them in their own minds and created some scenes, um, some for humor, some for theological thought and discussion. Nonetheless, um, there was opportunity for evangelical Christians to talk about the Lord Jesus. And when there's that opportunity, uh, take it. Uh, I, I know in some cities you have evangelical churches who've gotten together and they've rented out, you know, entire movie theaters. And so I saw a little uh, thing on my phone app. I have Fox News on my phone app. And yesterday I saw the couple who produced the movie being interviewed on Fox News. And I was kind of curious. They seem like very genuine people. I, I don't know anything about them, whether they know Christ or not. But they seemed genuine, and her biggest concern, the producer's wife, was that, you know, Jesus be highlighted, and uh, one of the things that they did, I I think they've bled together. Uh, They're also responsible for that series in the Bible, which I I never saw. I really can't comment on it, Um, but there was a a scene in there where they had the devil, and the devil looked, I guess, like Barack Obama, and I've, I've seen that picture. And so it created such controversy. They originally had that in the movie on the Son of God, but they were afraid that the devil would end up getting more press than the the Lord Jesus, so they just kind of took it out. But uh, they were saying about one church in, I think it was in Oklahoma, where there's like 13 theaters that are brought together. Uh, You go to the movie theater, I guess you can go to one of 13 movies, and they rented out every single theater and uh, they're going to have the Son of God, you know, shown in each one. There are some churches who, when the Passion of Christ was uh, shown, because they rented out the movie theater, a pastor got up and shared the plan of salvation. Again, most of these movies don't necessarily articulate the plan of salvation. Uh, even the Jesus film, which is without a doubt the most accurate movie ever done in the life of Christ, uh, Campus Crusade added at the end of it the four spiritual laws uh, so that people could share it. I, I remember showing the Jesus films. You either did that or you stood up and you, you shared the gospel. And I remember when I, when I was in Guanavaca, Mexico, and we were showing uh, the Jesus film. And at the end, we stood up and we shared the plan of salvation. So it became a springboard and a tool. So we should be looking for every opportunity. The biggest problem in America today is evangelicals are no longer sharing the gospel. And if everyone listening to my voice just honestly asked and answered the question, when was the last time I even attempted to bring someone through the plan of salvation? I fear that we would have far more that would say it's been a long time than would say, well, yesterday or last week. And that's the problem with America. We're no longer sharing our faith. And it's the gospel that's the power of God to change people and bring people into the kingdom. And so the critical event becomes one person presenting to another person the information concerning the death, burial, and resurrection and how it relates to their sin and their eternal destiny. And if that doesn't happen, America is going to continue to slide. It doesn't matter what else we're doing, but it's going to continue to slide. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next caller who's waiting patiently. Indeed, another live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Um, I was listening to a um, radio program called Open Line on Saturday, and um, a lady had called in, and she asked um, about the Holy Spirit, and is it possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in our day? And um, and there were two men on there, and they both gave their reason why it was not possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit now, because Jesus physically is not with us in his body. And um, and I explained to my children in my belief that um, to in our day to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to stiff-arm God and telling him no in his, in his willing a person when he's trying to get them saved. Um, and I was just wondering if you knew which denomination or, or which, um, you know, which church it is that, that teaches that doctrine. Well, many solid evangelical brothers uh, hold that position that it is impossible to commit the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And they would say that you cannot reproduce the circumstances in which it was committed, where the Son of God was literally physically here on the earth, and uh, the Spirit of God living in him and ministering through him and doing miracles by him, uh, since you can't replicate those circumstances, that it is an impossible sin to commit today. And let me just say their rationale behind it is not a bad thing because what they're wanting people to understand is, number one, a Christian cannot commit it. Uh, And that's very often where, say, me as a pastor and other pastors and Christian leaders have to deal with this problem is someone will come into the office and they'll say, well, I I fear I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and and, uh, that I've lost my salvation. Well, again, um, a person who is truly saved cannot lose their salvation. They are eternally secure. And the fact that someone, even if they were not a Christian, were concerned that they had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would indicate, for for me at least, that they haven't done that yet. Um, So there is debate whether it can be committed today. Uh, There is certainly a difference, though, I think, between stiff-arming the Spirit and resisting him in blaspheming him. Uh, There are people who have resisted the Spirit of God. Paul, when he was confronted by the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, and the Spirit of God had already been sent by the time uh, he has this encounter, because Jesus spoke of a future ministry of the Spirit where he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the Lord Jesus said, you know, why are you kicking against the goats? And he uses the picture of a goad stick that, you know, God would use, uh, that a person would use to, you know, direct his his oxen or his animal. And the Lord is giving a picture that Paul was kicking against the goads. He was resisting, you know, God's work in his life. And indeed, you know, he was under deep conviction. And God ultimately, of course, brings him to, to genuine faith. But... It's certainly, I think it is possible for a person to, um, this is something, let me just say this. Let me first just say this. Everyone would agree that there is one unpardonable sin today. And that unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is no forgiveness for that, period. But again, to come to Christ, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. 
And the one within the Holy Trinity that the Father uses, though you cannot totally separate the ministries of each member of the Godhead because they are inseparable. And there are many illustrations where maybe one person in the Godhead is accented in terms of his ministry in this area, but each are somehow given credit, like in creation. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the creation of the world, but some could argue, well, one member is highlighted over another, or the Father is credited with the giving of spiritual gifts, the Son is credited with the giving of spiritual gifts, and the Spirit is as well. Though I suppose if there's one member of the Godhead who's highlighted over the other, you might say the Holy Spirit, since they are called the spirituals. In either case, and it happens when you're indwelt by the Spirit, the day God saves you, he also gives you a birthday present. In either case, I do think, although each member of the Godhead is involved in bringing us to the Father, uh, the emphasis is on the Spirit of Truth, who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when God convicts a person and they say no, and they say no, and they say no, who is the Holy Spirit called? Well, he's given many titles in the Bible, but one of the titles that he has given is Spirit of Truth. And so he tells us the truth. And if a person says no to the spirit of truth long enough, what are they ultimately saying? They're saying, what God the Holy Spirit is convicting my heart over is a lie. It's not truth. And I reject it as truth. Now, not everyone goes through that mental process. Some say, I know it's true, but I don't want it because I love my sin. But some people reach a point where they say, I know this is truth, uh, but I disagree so much, I want to call it evil. And I think when they do that, there is a line known only to God that a person can cross. And it's a hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. And people can cross that line. Jesus plainly said it in the parable of the sower in Luke 8. He spoke of the devil being given permission to snatch the seed that has been sown in the human heart, that the person may not believe and be saved. Uh, There's a coming future day where God himself will send a deluding influence on people who have not responded to the gospel prior to the rapture. And the Bible says they will believe what is false. It will be a judgment of God. They will have crossed the line that they cannot cross back over. And some people in their dealings with God, the Holy Spirit, call it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, call it the ultimate resistance. Uh, They cross a line that they cannot cross back over. So this is not one of those issues that is a test of orthodoxy. Uh, Good godly people uh, differ on, you know, how this sin may take place, but the conclusions are the same in terms of our relationship to the Spirit and our need to respond to when he opens our eyes up. Anyway, great question. Let's let's go to uh, the next one. All right. A, uh, an 11-year-old um, has the following question about Jesus. When Jesus was a baby and a child, did he remember heaven? And also, did he ever get sick? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, kids ask the best questions. We had another 11-year-old who called, called today. Um, it, it's an interesting question because you see the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed in different ways. Uh, he, he knew the thoughts of Nathaniel when he sat under the tree ever before meeting him. Uh, he knew uh, Lazarus was already dead when he was 25 miles away. 
he knew all about people like the Samaritan woman in John 4 uh, ever before he had even met her. In many occasions, you see the Lord Jesus knowing the thoughts of his audience. Yet on the other hand, there were limitations that uh, he often expressed in his humanity. Uh, The Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2 says. Uh, He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. Um, He learned obedience uh, through the things he suffered, Hebrews 5 teaches. Um, There were times when he controlled his lack of knowledge. Uh, He self-willed that he would not know something. Uh, Usually he expressed his omniscience when the father obviously had shown him there was a need to do that. It's because he says, everything I I do, the father's shown me I need to do it. But it's interesting that it's usually in defense of his deity that he would show his omniscience. But when he says, for instance, well, you know, no one knows the day or the hour, you know, the season, but you don't know the day or the hour. Uh, He doesn't know, the angels don't know, the father alone knows. Well, I think in his resurrected body he knew, but in his um, humanity he he didn't know prior to the resurrection. Uh, So as an act of humility, he chose to take on our humanity. That's part of what he did. And he suffered. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He never sinned, tempted in all ways as we are, yet he never sinned. So he suffered in temptation. Uh, never responded or yield. He suffered in his humanity to hunger and thirst, and uh, he felt the emotional pain of being deserted by his friends. Uh, He was hated. He was ridiculed. He literally (coughs) suffered, bled, and died on a cross. And so he joined us in in our humiliation and in all of the indignities of life that, that we had to face and deal with. He, he, um, he had to, you know, be clothed to, to, to deal with human waste. He had to use the bathroom. He was truly human. Now, with that said, uh, your question, did he ever get sick, is an interesting question, and, and people have answered it in different ways. Some would say, well, Jesus never got a runny nose and never had the flu and never threw up because uh, that's a result of the fall. And since he was an unfallen person, uh, he never experienced that. And I can appreciate that conclusion because they're trying to affirm his sinlessness. And indeed, he was sinless. But on the other hand, you know, let's take that a little bit further. Um, When Adam, before he sinned, if Adam was climbing in a tree and fell out of a tree, could he have broken his arm? Well, uh, I I think so. Some would say, well, no, because, you know, pain and suffering was a result of the fall. Well, maybe, you know, you could argue both sides of that coin. Uh, But nonetheless, Jesus was sinless in his humanity, but he entered into a world that was fallen. And so he experiences, he experienced all the consequences of a fallen world. So I think it's very possible that he got sick. Now, let me just say, the Bible never says a word about his getting sick any more than it says a word of his life between the ages of 12 and 30, because God wants to put the emphasis where he wants to put the emphasis on his being the son of God. But it's a great question. And I really appreciate it. I don't think we've ever been asked that one before in the Bible line, but I appreciate it. An 11-year-old asked it. Well, we're out of time for today. If you're listening, you don't have a church home, we'd love to invite you to Community Bible Church. We're meeting now at our Bluffton branch, our Bluffton campus at the gateway to Hilton Head at the bridge. Uh, we're also meeting here in Buford.